What's up, everybody? Happy New Year. It's not Happy New Year yet? Why well, it wasn't talking to you then? Ah, all right. Hey, we're glad you're here. Listen, who's ready for 2024? It went by quickly this past year, did it not? It seems like uh, we were just starting this series in the book of Acts. We preached through the book of Acts last year. Uh, and in, in getting ready today to present what we're going to talk about, I wanted to think this time and the next time I preach, uh, I wanted to think about what from the book of Acts do we especially need to apply here in Collinsville? Because we are a church plant. We started this church about six years ago. We have a vision for planting additional congregations and uh, we want to have a healthy ministry here, but then we also want to be planting churches other places as we move forward. We want to start a rehab here. Uh, we've got some mission works and some other things we're planting. Then we've got other friends in churches close to us that we work with. We've got the Crossings Church Interbelt across the river, the Crossings Church St. Charles County across the river, the Crossings Church Columbia, Crossway Columbia, uh, in, in Columbia, Missouri, up at Mizzou. We are going to be planting another congregation, uh, picking a location for that uh, with our friends this next year. And so there's all kinds of good stuff happening here, and we want that to continue. And what is in the book of Acts is the history of the first few years of the early church. And we've been looking at that closely because in the early church, there's all these things that God did and all these things the people did that are meant to serve as examples for us and things that we should be applying to our lives. You know, the Bible says about itself, the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for those things. God doesn't just give us the Bible to have like some stories to look at or to have some history to look at. The point of the Bible is to be taught, corrected, uh, you know, rebuked and, and trained so that we can apply this stuff to our lives. When we open the Bible, the point of it is to say what in here about God uh, and how God thinks about the world and how God operates in the world applies to my life. What in here about God is he calling me to do? What in here about God is he calling me to think or the values he's calling me to adopt? It's meant to be very practical in that. Like when we come together on Sundays and we open up the scriptures and we look at it, we're not just looking at a history lesson. The point of this is we want to take this stuff and apply it to our lives. It needs to make a difference in our lives. There's a so what, okay? We're going to look at this old book, so what? Because this is going to make a difference in my life as I take this and apply it. That's the point, okay? So you've got some notes in your bulletin. The reason we uh, give you notes every week is we want you to be able to look at the scriptures that we're looking at. But there's also places for you to write something down because we want you to take this stuff and apply it to your life. So we want to make this simple as we can, okay? Um, now we started off 2023 talking about King Jesus. You guys remember those first couple of lessons when we got into the book of Acts? One of the things that was uh, apparent as we looked at the unfolding in the book of Acts is this theme of how Jesus is the king. Jesus is king of everything. He's king of the world. In fact, Acts starts out with Jesus talking with his disciples about what's called the kingdom. 
Okay, and we talked through that. We had the disciples coming and saying, Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In Acts 1, there was still a misunderstanding. See, the early disciples thought that this Messiah figure that was coming, that Jesus was, was going to be like a warrior king who was going to take out the Romans. There was a misunderstanding there. So we'll talk through some of that as we go. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to ask Mike to read what is the first presentation of the gospel in the book of Acts. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So go ahead, Mike, if you don't mind, and pick up reading in Acts 22, or Acts 2, verse 22, please. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's delivery plan and foreknowledge, and with you, with the help of the wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Okay, and go ahead and read the 32 through 36 there, Mike, too. The next one. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, all Israel must be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay. Now, what Mike just read there is Peter's presentation of the gospel to this big group of Jews in Acts 2. Now, what had happened prior to this is Jesus had commanded his disciples after his resurrection, he said, I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to wait on the, uh, on the counselor. We're gonna, God's going to send something special to you. And so a group of about 120 went and stayed in Jerusalem and all of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost, there was the sound of a really loud clap of thunder that got a bunch of people's attention and then literal fire, literal fire came down from the sky, went into the house where these people were, and then they all started speaking in a language that all these people that had gathered around could understand, it looks like, universally. And they didn't all speak the same language, okay? So there's something miraculous that's happening here. Uh, now, the Bible has a history of fire coming down from heaven. It's usually to smite the enemies of God. It's usually not a good thing, but it's obvious that God is involved when fire starts coming down from the sky. And this crowd gathers around that Peter speaks to. Guys, this is the same crowd 40 days prior that had been clamoring for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is the same crowd that 40 days prior had been yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, when Jesus was brought before Pilate. This is the same ones that were present when Jesus was crucified and that were cheering as it happened. And these are the ones that Peter informs. Jesus was God's man you know he was God's man because he was able to do miracles when he came here. It's obvious he was from God. But you, even though it was obvious he was from God, took him and you put him on a cross and you killed him. 
But God raised him from the dead. And not only did God raise him from the dead, God also is the one who chose him to be the one to carry on the seed of David. You remember David wrote about the Messiah that was going to come and how all his enemies were going to be made a footstool under his feet and he was going to make everything right in the world and he was going to rule with an iron scepter and he was going to be unlike anybody else that ever come. That's Jesus, by the way, the one we've been waiting on for thousands of years as Jews. That's who this was. And you killed him. God raised him from the dead, and not only did God raise him from the dead, God took him up to heaven and put him in his right hand and gave him all of the power and all of the authority. And that miracle of fire coming down from heaven, he sent that. That was from Jesus. Now, if you're a Jew, and you're one of the ones that had Jesus killed, and you're in that audience, how do you feel at this moment? How do you feel at this moment? You're not having a good day. Right? If you've ever been in a situation where you know you're busted, okay? If you've ever gotten patted down by the police and you got something in your pocket you shouldn't and they feel it and you know you're about to go to jail, okay? That's happened to me more than once. I wasn't always a Christian, okay? That's a sinking feeling. That's what these guys were feeling, right? They're feeling that sinking feeling right now. Because why? They killed the Son of God. They just found out that the false teacher and false prophet wasn't a false teacher and false prophet. They thought Jesus was a bad guy. They found out Jesus was the Son of God. And they killed him. Fire that comes down from heaven does things like smites the enemies of Elijah. It doesn't do things like bless. Okay, There's going to be fire that's going to come down and consume us. Is got to be what they're thinking. They say to Peter in verse 37, they say, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And guys, there's desperation here, because I don't think that they had hope at this point. I think they wanted some, But they would have understood, guys, if God chose to smite them in this moment, they had it coming. Have you ever done something wrong and known you had it coming when the the bad comes? You're like, well, you know, this stinks, but I've got it coming. That's how they, they, they knew whatever God chose to do, they killed his son. Whatever God chose to do with him, God was going to be just, right? They had it coming. They deserved it. Do you ever struggle with feeling like God loves you? Anybody in here? Okay. This is one of those things we're ashamed to admit, which is why I don't see a bunch of hands going up in here. Because who in here wants to admit that you, you struggle with believing that God loves you? I've been in ministry a long time. Uh, my dad was, has been in ministry a lot longer than me, uh, about 60 years now. Uh, and I remember having a conversation with him at one time. I said, Dad, what's the hardest thing to get people to believe that, that's been historically the hardest problem that you've had to deal with in ministry over the course of your lifetime? And his response is very quick. It, it's helping people see that God loves them. That is the number one hardest thing that I've been able to persuade people to believe is that God really loves them. Number one hardest thing, okay? For this crowd in Jerusalem... This Acts 2 crowd, 
They found out they killed Jesus. They killed the Son of God. What did Jesus do to deserve to get killed? He claimed to be God, which they considered blasphemy, okay? And they made a bunch of other stuff up about him. But as far as his character, as far as how he treated people, as far as compassion, like, there's really nothing anybody could point to in reality and say, this guy deserved it. He didn't deserve it the way that they treated him. They did something really, really wrong, right? They asked, what shall we do? And then Peter, I wonder sometimes, because Jesus told the apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven. There was some authority to their words. I wonder if Peter couldn't have made the choice here to say, well, you're done. And then, like, called fire down that, that, that wiped him out. I don't know what, what would God have done if Peter chose to do that. I don't know. That's not what Peter does, though. That's not what Peter does. And I also don't think that's the heart of Jesus Christ either. What does Peter say when these people say, what shall we do? Peter tells him in verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, when I repent and am baptized into Christ, the Bible says, according to the scripture, there's two things that happen. I receive, number one, the, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are two things that are laid out for me that I receive when I repent and am baptized. So if somebody comes and says, I want to become a Christian. I want to give my life to Christ. Uh, one of the, the lessons we learn from Acts is the universality of this approach. This is how we teach people to do that. It's repentance and baptism. So what does it mean to repent? Luke 13.3, Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now that's just a little uh, statement that he makes in a larger context where he actually repeats this statement twice to this group of people that he's talking to in order to highlight that everybody needs to repent. Now let me ask you a question. Whenever you see this sentence, unless you repent, you two will perish, I want you to pretend Jesus is saying that to you. What kind of look does he have on his face as he's saying that to you in your mind? Because I think for most of you, Jesus has kind of a sour look on his face as you envision him saying this to you, repent or perish, like he's kind of mad at you, okay? That's how most of us would read this. 
I want you to change the way Jesus is looking at you because that's not how this, is, this reads, okay? Jesus is looking at you and saying, repent or perish, but he's not looking at you with a mean face. He's looking at you with tears in his eyes. And he's trying to persuade you that what you are doing is killing you. And it's not mean Jesus that's looking down at you and you know, trying to run your life. It's compassionate Jesus looking at a child he loves that's engaged in behavior that's harmful to them that he wants them to turn away from. It's not him running your business. It's him wanting you to have the very best life you can have. That's what these commands are for. And so when Jesus is telling this crowd, unless you repent, you too are going to perish. Guys, in this same chapter, if you read a little bit further, in the same chapter of Luke here, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem for their lack of repentance. As a hen wants to take its chicks under its wings, Jesus wants to take all the inhabitants of this city and just cover them. Guys, and that's what baptism is, is it's Jesus covering you and making you okay. All of the promises that are wrapped up in that. Does it sound like repentance is optional? It's not. And, it, it, and it's for everybody. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And again, guys, this isn't mean-faced Jesus. This is compassionate Jesus. Just He wants you to have a good life. That He's revealing a truth to you, not because He's controlling and wants to run your business. It's because He... He wants to bless you. And he's going to make the best decisions for you because he knows best. You know, it's, it's, he wants to help you. He's compassionate. He loves you, wants you to be blessed and have a good life. He doesn't want you to hurt. That's why he says, unless you repent, you will perish. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is a confusing topic because a lot of times when I say, hey, what does it mean to repent? People will say, well, it means to tell God you're sorry. How many of you think that's what repentance is? Uh, this is what I thought it was. Whenever I first studied the Bible and was learning how to be a Christian, the guy that was studying the Bible said, what does it mean to repent? And I said, well, it means to tell God you're sorry. And he said, no, you're wrong. And I said, well, no, you're wrong. I grew up going to church. I know what repentance means. And he said, no, I promise you're wrong. Go study it. And so I went and studied it. And guess what? He was right. I was wrong. Even though I grew up going to church. I grew up going to church. And I thought to repent means to tell God you're sorry. That's not what repentance means. That's part of it. That's part of it. But, you know, if, if I tell God I'm sorry, but I don't ever make any changes or try to do anything different or try to, try to get help with whatever it is I'm struggling with, if I just sort of live in the same sorry pattern that I've been living in, but I'm just apologetic about it, is that repentance? No, that's just telling God you're sorry and not changing anything. You know what we call that? Telling God you're sorry and not changing anything. We don't call it repentance. That's something different. That's just something we kind of made up. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. You can write that down on your notes. I think there's a blank for you. Repentance is a change of mind 
that leads to a change of behavior and lifestyle. Uh, change of mind, it literally means in Greek, metanoia, change, metanoia, mind, change of mind. It literally means that. It means when you, uh, if you repent, it means you start seeing something the way God sees it. If God says, that's serious, you should pay attention to that in his word. I'm going to repentantly say, okay, I'm going I'm to adapt my thinking to God's thinking. If God says, this sin over here is deadly, and it's something that I struggle with, that I don't really want to give up, like in my unrepentant thinking, I'll think, well, there's pleasure there to be had, or whatever, there's some kind of purpose there. But in my repentant thinking, I'm thinking, that's like picking up a king cobra and rubbing it up against my cheek. Like, that's deadly. That's how God sees sin. God sees sin as deadly. I see sin as, eh, not really that bad. Why? Because I'm not repentant. I'm not thinking repentantly. When I'm repentant, I change my mind to look like God sees things, which means there are certain behaviors I'm going to stay away from. Now, can I modify my behavior without repenting? You betcha. That's why this is a heart-level thing. The reason I say that, guys, have you ever read that passage where Jesus says, they worship me, uh, but their, uh, their hearts are far from me? You know, they, they give me these words, but their hearts really aren't in it. They're just kind of going through the motions. You, you remember this? You can go through the motions and not have your heart in it, and it just, God sees that. And God wants your heart. He wants your heart level engagement. He wants you to be repentant. And guys, repentance is central to the plan of Jesus for everybody. In Luke 24, 7, 24, 47, it says, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There's that word repentance again. There's a universality to this. This was part of the plan of Jesus. What he's saying here is my people are going to preach to the whole world that they need to change their mind to be like my mind. They need to change their heart to be like my heart. And when you change your mind and change your heart to be like me, there's going to be forgiveness of sin that goes along with that. And this is going to start in Jerusalem, and it's going to go out from there. And that's exactly what we see happening. And there's an expectation, guys, that repentance is going to be something that's observable. Something that other people can see. In Acts 26, 20, it says, uh, Paul, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and then demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Who are they going to see it? Who, who, who's going to see it? This was other people in the church, guys, that would be able to observe this. Repentance, real repentance, will be evident to others. Real repentance will be evident to others. One of the things uh, that sometimes folks struggle with is uh, feeling like they are saved. Sometimes people doubt their salvation. Part of what Acts lays out for us, guys, in, in this call to 
uh, respond to Jesus in repentance and baptism is he wants us to have a physical something that we can look at where it serves as like a line in the sand. And when we initially decide to become Christians, we're saying, I am going to repent, meaning I'm going to change my mind where I'm going to adopt the values of Jesus. I'm going to start trying to live for Jesus. And I'm going to go through this act that is going to be my line in the sand moving forward. And I'm making this commitment to think like Jesus, talk like Jesus, and act like Jesus in life. It is all about Jesus. I'm going to die to my old way of life, and I'm going to live uh, this new way of life. This is something that was understood by the people in the first century, guys. This, this is something that's a little bit lost on us today where we have to explain this. The question on your notes is, how is baptism related to repentance, this initial repentance? A lot of people don't know, but baptism, guys, did not start with the Christians. Baptism started with the Jews. The Jews would baptize Gentile converts uh, that were coming over into Judaism before the Christians started. We are fairly positive about this, okay? Now, there's a lot of evidence. There's a big old book. Uh, this fella, his last name is Ferguson, wrote. He's kind of the preeminent scholar in the space. He covers the first five centuries in a book um, called Baptism and Theology in the First Five Centuries, I think. It's about 900 pages. It is the uh, reference work for this study. Um, but you, if you are interested, go, go get that book and read it. You can get it on Kindle for like 10 bucks. But he walks through, the first 200 pages are, are just a survey of the history where he goes through every single major work on the practice of baptism, the theology of baptism. He tells you, here's what they did in, in century one, here's what they did in century two, here's where we can trace this practice. You know, and baptism went crazy after a few years. There were all kinds of weird practices and stuff that were added in different parts of the world. When I'm doing my theology, when, when I'm doing my Bible study, when I'm trying to figure out how I, what I should believe from the Bible and how I should practice, what I like to do is I like to try to find out in the first century, when we're talking about New Testament, I want to know what the church thought in the New Testament times like about some of these things. What did they think about baptism whenever the apostles were still walking the earth? Like, what did they teach as authoritative? What, what did these guys who rubbed elbows with Jesus teach about some of these, these subjects and the nuances on them? And so uh, when we're talking baptism, that's where my mind is. I don't, I don't care what the latest denomination says. I don't care what the latest new book says. I want to know what they thought about it back then. Because I know in the first century, they were producing Christians, amen? And some of these movements that happen in our days that are different, I don't know if they're producing Christians. I want to produce Christians with the work that I'm doing. And so I know if I just do stuff the way they did it in the first century, that's gonna, if I think about it and teach about it the way they did it, I know that's what it produced. I'm not going to innovate any better than them, Okay. So on these subjects, I always want to go back and look at what they think. Now, I think the way the Jews looked at baptism gives us some insight on how we should look at it. Here's a quote from Ferguson. This is talking about uh, conversion to Judaism and the process they went through. It says, acceptance of the commandments 
uh, was the essence of conversion to Judaism. They would actually baptize you if you were going to convert, okay? Now, it wasn't a Jewish baptism, wasn't something that was administered by another person. It was different in that you'd have two people that would walk you in, but then you would actually go down into the water yourself, and then you would remove your clothes in the water. They wouldn't be able to see you because you were under the water. And then you would dip all the way under and come all the way up so your whole body would make contact, and then they would put on new clothes and come out, okay? And that was you, that's when you became a Jew, was after you came up out of the water. That's when you were a Jew now. You weren't a Jew before that. You were a Jew after that. You also had to understand the commitment that you were making. Whenever you went under that water, if you didn't understand you were giving your life to God and that you were going to be faithful in following the commandments, your baptism didn't count. We know that because the Jewish rabbis argued about it and wrote their arguments down in a document called the Mishnah. So we're able to go back and read exactly what they thought and how they kind of processed through this. So the Jews taught that to become a Jew, you had to go through this ceremony, and then when you came up out of the ceremony, you were now a Jew. So whenever Peter comes along, or whenever John the Baptist comes along, and they start advocating baptism, there was already some historical understanding of the significance of this. Now, John's baptism was different because it was administered by a person Okay, which was different. Now there's a person involved. It was also connected to forgiveness of sin. Okay, And John told the people, hey, I'm baptizing you for forgiveness of sin, but after me, there's going to come one that's going to, his baptism's going to be better than mine. While John was still active, Jesus and his disciples came along, and when Jesus started his ministry, guess what they started doing while, before Jesus died? Jesus and his disciples started baptizing people in the book of John. Go read about it. Uh, they did that before the crucifixion. So there was something going on there. There were, bunch, there were people that were baptized. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus baptized the 12. Wouldn't surprise me, okay? Uh, but then we see in Acts this command to continue this baptism. Whenever you get to the, preach, uh, the preaching in, in, in uh, Acts 2 with Peter, you know, one of the questions people have had is, is how did they baptize that many people? Like, how were they set up to do that? In the first century, guys, there were over 150 cleansing pools around Jerusalem that were used for Jewish baptisms. And they were used for Jewish cleansing rituals. And they were big enough to get an entire person in them because they were built according to specific specifications so that they could do that. And so you had a whole bunch of those around the Temple Mount. Not all 150 were at the Temple Mount, but a bunch of those were at the Temple Mount. So whenever Peter called these people to get baptized, to give their life to Jesus, there were all these pools and cleansing pools where his disciples would have been able to go and carry this out. This was a full body immersion. And whenever they came up out of that water, Peter said their sins are forgiven and they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, this is something that, that the Jews would not have needed a ton of explanation for because they already understood the significance. This is a brand new life. The difference now is that this, this act is being connected to Jesus and it's going to be connected to the death, burial, and resurrection 
uh, of Jesus. It's going to be connected to the cross. And so there's a rich understanding that the Jews would have understood already that's connected to repentance because they understood their own baptisms. If you weren't repentant at your Jewish baptism, like I said, it didn't count. It just flat didn't count. So they would study with you ahead of time to make sure you were serious about it before you went and made the commitment. Right? We know that. Whenever we get here, what does baptism have to do with repentance? Guys, 1 Peter 3.21, the same guy that calls these 3,000 people to be baptized reminds us of what baptism is all about when he says that baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not about the water. It's not about the ceremony. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. What's important in baptism? It's the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. <clears throat> what is my role if I decide to be baptized? My role is I am making a commitment to follow Jesus as my Lord. If I want to get right with God, if I'm outside of a relationship with the Lord and I want, I want fellowship to be restored, I want relationship to be restored, what do I need to do? I need to give my heart to Jesus Christ in repentance. And I need to follow through with his call to be baptized. And when I repent and am baptized, guys, I need to know in my baptism, I am giving my life to Jesus Christ as a pledge. It is a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It's my pledge to surrender to Jesus Christ. What's my role in baptism? Surrender. Does Jesus call you to be perfect? Nope. Does Jesus call you to never sin again? That's unrealistic. I think if any of us in here could, we would say we would love to never sin again. But I think any of us who, if you look into any expectation God has of us, he understands our fallenness and our brokenness. It's unrealistic to think you're never going to sin again. But it's also uh, on us. Guys, we need to be concerned and to try, right? Like, I understand when I give my life to Jesus, I'm going to make more mistakes in life. I'm, I'm still going to blow it sometimes. But what's different about my life is when I blow it, I'm going to make the commitment. When I blow it, I want to get up and dust myself off and try again. And I really think that's what God asks us to do. I really think that's a... Guys, sometimes we can feel like we can't come to God because we'll never be good enough. Anybody in here ever feel that way? Like, I just can't do this because I'll never be good enough. I can't go to that church because that's where the good people go and I'm not one of the good people, right? I, I felt that way. Like I know people who feel that way. But guys, there's a difference. It, sometimes whenever we're scared of messing up, we'll just give up or we'll not try really hard. There's a difference between trying and not trying. There's a difference between struggling and giving up. Guys, if you are struggling, welcome to life with Jesus Christ. 
because he welcomes the struggler. But if you're struggling, it means you're trying. If you're struggling, it means you're inviting other people around to help you. It means you're taking advantage of the resources that you have. If you just give up, it just means you decide you're going to be content with where you are and you're not going to try. And you're not going to change anything. And that's different, man. Jesus wants us to, to struggle and to try and to move forward and not to give up. Your baptism is meant to be your public declaration of allegiance to King Jesus. Your baptism is your public declaration of allegiance to King Jesus. Paul reminds the Roman church uh, what their baptisms meant. Guys, it's important that you understand Paul never in person had visited this church in Rome. He wrote them a letter years after they were established, which should put on display the universality of the teaching about baptism in the early church. Here is a group that Paul did not start, that Paul had never worked with or communicated with, that had been in place for years. He writes a letter to them reminding them of what their baptism meant. He is not the one who taught them initially what their baptism meant, okay? He is repeating what were universal truths in the first century. This was universally how baptism was understood. Universally, baptism was understood in the early church as the moment you became a Christian. You were not a Christian before your baptism in the early church. Now, God make, is the one who decides all that, makes decisions about all that, but this was not a debated topic in the first century. This was a fact. You're either in or out based on your baptism. Baptism is the thing that they would call back to as the beginning point. Baptism, whenever Paul was urging repentance, is the language of baptism he would use whenever he's writing letters. He would remind people, here's what you committed to in your baptism, in your washing, in your renewal. Here's what you committed to. And he would remind them of the commitments they made in baptism because they talked about it before the baptisms took place. They made sure people knew what they were committing to. They're committing to Jesus Christ as king. And there's a line in the sand where life was one way before and now it's one way after. They did this intentionally. Here's how he lays this out in Romans 6. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined with him in his death? Again, he's reminding them of a teaching they already had because he's, these are people that had already done all this. He's reminding them of what they did and he's not the one who taught them this to begin with. Somebody else did. He's sharing a general truth that was universally understood by the early church. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined, joined him in death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. How many of you in here have ever gotten sick of your life and wanted to start over? Seriously, like I have gotten sick of life 
to the point that I was suicidal at one time in life. I hated myself and my life so much, I just wanted to blow my brains out. And I was serious about it. And man, that's not a happy place to be when you're just despairing, where you don't even want to get up and move in the morning because you hate life so much. God never intended any of us to get there in that headspace, okay? There has been stuff that has happened. If you've ever gotten there, there's been stuff that's happened in your life that, that God wouldn't, wouldn't like. He doesn't want you to hurt or to feel that way. Man, Jesus, he doesn't look down and want you to have a, a bad life. He wants you to have a good life. And all this stuff that he teaches us, like everything he gives us, he gives us for a reason. There's something good that we're missing when we think we're going to do something different. When we decide in our practice or our theology or whatever, we're going to do something different because we know something better. There's something good that we're missing out on when we do that because everything God gives us is for our good. Even, even his teaching and our practice, like everything is for our good. If you have ever felt like you want to start over in life, guys, that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ, God takes bad stuff and he makes good stuff. God takes dark stuff and he makes it light. God takes sin and he cleanses it, makes it righteousness. God can take the bad stuff in your life and he can make good stuff come out of it. He can take your old life that's dead and he can give you a new life that's alive. He can do all that. He can take that old person you were that you don't like and he can bury that person in a grave and he can raise up a new person that's the person you were always meant to be. And that is the significance of baptism. If your life is in shambles, it's because you haven't been living life with Jesus. And what God promises is when you give your life to him and start living life with him, there's going to be a new life on the other side of this commitment where life is going to be different with Jesus Christ involved. Man, wherever he goes, there's life and light and good stuff. Wherever he's not, there's bad stuff. It's very simple when you think of it that way. But life with Jesus starts with your commitment to him. It says we were died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Guys, baptism is all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Whenever Jesus lived and died, was buried, and rose again, and his followers come and want to follow him, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to die. You have to die. That old sinful you needs to die. You've got to bury him. What do you do with someone that has died? You put them in the grave, right? You bury them. That's what your baptism is. When you decide, I want to give my life to Jesus, you're saying, I'm going to be buried with Jesus. Just like Jesus lived and died and was buried in a tomb, I'm going to live and die and be buried with Jesus. And just like Jesus rose up from the dead, now I'm going to rise up from the dead and live this new life, right? He says, uh, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that the sin might lose 
its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin, and since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. Jesus gives us instruction about two physical acts that he wants us to participate in in, in in our practice of faith. Just two. There is baptism that we've been talking about, and then there is the, the uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, taking the Lord's Supper together. These are things that are commanded by Jesus. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you, what does baptism and the Lord's Supper both have to do with? They both have to do with the cross. And so there's something about the cross that Jesus does not want us to miss. Because your baptism is meant to be a one-time act that is formative for your identity. Where you have a line in the sand where you say, now I'm a Christian. There's not this wishy-washy, when did you become a Christian? No, you have a date and a time. It's not a, I don't know. That's not biblical. Biblical is you know when you became a Christian because you know when you were baptized. That's how they understood it in the first century. Okay? That's how you know. And then after this commitment was made, there is a difference in life that is seen because there's an expectation that repentance shows up. And if it doesn't show up, then it wasn't real. If you didn't know what you were doing when you made this commitment, then it wasn't real. If you say you got baptized to join a church, but you never took faith seriously and never really made any changes, it wasn't real. I think there's clarity on that stuff. God does not want you to go through life wondering, am I saved or not? Or did I make this? No, either you did or you didn't. It's that simple. But, but the physical acts, guys, Jesus wants you to know baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're all tied to the cross. Why? Why? Guys, there is a motivation that comes from knowing that God loves you. Remember what I said is the hardest thing for people to understand and believe? It's that God loves me. God loves me. Guys, the cross of Jesus Christ is all about how God loves me. Because on the cross, the Son of God allowed himself to be killed for my sins. Whenever he took that death onto himself, he took that death and that punishment onto himself that he did not deserve. He had never done anything wrong. They trumped up a bunch of charges and, and made it sound like he was a bad guy when he had literally never sinned once in his life or done anything other than try to help, and then they killed him for it. And he just let the help continue because he says, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to take this and I'm going to apply this punishment to everybody who's ever offended me. Guys, have you ever had somebody offend you and you just kind of, it kind of sticks in your craw where if I ever get a chance to stick it to them, I'm going to? You ever think that way? I do. That guy, just give me a chance, man, you know? Man, that's, Jesus doesn't think that way. We all gave him reason to offend or to, to, to think that way about us. Man, he went and died for us. 
He didn't ever try to get back. He died for us. He surrendered to death willingly for us because he cares about us. And man, every time I struggle to surrender to him, that cross is meant to remind me that's how he thinks about me. That's how he treated me. He didn't have to go die on that cross for me, but he did. When I'm struggling with faithfulness, he died on the cross for me, man. When I'm struggling with being selfish, he died on the cross for me. That's how committed he is to me. And so I want to please him. I want to do things for him. I want to work for him. Why? Because he loves me that much. It's not to get him to love me. It's not to get him to care for me. It's because he loves me and because he cares for me. And that's what the cross is a reminder of every week. So Jesus gives us these physical things. Baptism, you do that once. Communion, you do that every week. Why? Because he wants you to remember the cross, the cross, the cross. I love you. I love you. I love you. Don't give up. I'm with you. Don't give up. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. That's, that's the cross. And then Jesus wants us to live out of that. Isn't that good news? He doesn't like stand over you like with a whip ready just to crack it. Like he's a, he's a loving father and he's alongside us and he's going through life and he's saying, I know this is tough sometimes, but you can do this. Come on, we're going to do it together. That's Jesus. He's approachable. He's compassionate. You can love him, and so can your friends. He's good. He's good. Amen. We're going to take communion together, and then we'll close our lesson. Let me pray. God, as we uh, think through what you've done for us on the cross, help us to apply this truth to our lives that you give us new life, you give us new identity. God, we don't have to reinvent ourselves. We don't have to do anything other than surrender to you and you reinvent us through your spirit. It's in your name we pray, amen. So as we stated uh, in, in Acts, when the people ask, what do I need to do? Uh, Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That forgiveness of sin, man, that sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? I want you to know the Bible teaches that in baptism, forgiveness of sin is a work of God. It's not something that we earn or something that we do. We don't do anything that puts God in the IOU column when it comes to uh, how we live our lives. Look at the way Paul writes about this. Now, Paul... Again, we're going to see how this is connected to repentance again because Paul is going to use baptism language in Titus uh, to talk about just a reminder of, hey, here's what you were doing in your baptism. He says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What does it sound like he's talking about? He's talking about life before Christ, right? He's writing to them and saying, hey, we used to live this way. Before we knew Jesus, we lived one way. We didn't really care about God. We didn't have the values that we have now. We just sort of lived life and, and it wasn't good, right? 
But then something's going to happen where they're going to change. It says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of what? His mercy. If you are saved by God, it's not because of the good stuff you did. You can just take this to the bank. It's because of God's mercy. Because if you were able to save yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus, would you? If you were able to make yourself right before God, you wouldn't need Jesus. But that's an impossibility. The Bible presents that as an impossibility. When we sin, we are completely cut off from God. Just one time. Now that's hard for me to wrap my mind around, but that's how holy God is and that's how seriously deadly sin is. That's hard for me to wrap my mind around. That's what God says. So repentantly, I need to try to adapt that view. That's what God says. Let me think of it the way God says it. We lived in malice, envy, being hated, hating one another, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That word right there, washing of rebirth, this is baptism language. This, the word that is used right there, this is a reference to Christian baptism. The rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. That is what he's referring to. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by what? Justified by his grace. You know what grace means? Gift. That's what it means. It's the word charis. Uh, pretty, pretty word in Greek, charis. You may know a person named charis. I think that's a pretty name. It means gift or grace. Gift. Can you earn a gift? If, if, if I give you a trillion dollars, but I made you go out and uh, mow the grass for it a few days a week, now I have overpaid you, but if you have gone and, and actually earned a wage and we made an agreement where this is uh, a wage you're going to earn, okay, I have overpaid you, but you earned a wage because we had an agreement this is something you were earning, right? What God says to us when he comes and he says, I'm going to give you something that is unearnable, and that is salvation. It's priceless and unearnable. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. All you can do is accept it. Now, if I give you a trillion dollars and I give it to you in a check, what do you got to do? You got to take it to the bank. You got to take it to the bank. Does it stop being a gift? Why? You had to do something to accept it, though. Does that mean it's not a gift anymore? If I give you a package and it's wrapped in, in wrapping paper, what do you have to do? You got to unwrap it. Does it stop being a gift because you had to do something? Okay. Sometimes people, they will misunderstand whenever the Bible says that you're not saved by works. 
or that you're not saved by works of righteousness, they will do things like include baptism in that list and say baptism has nothing to do with being saved because you're not saved by works. I want to point out in this same passage here that says we are not saved because of the righteous things we are done. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In this same paragraph, he uses language to refer to God's saving action in baptism. Not because baptism is something that makes you earn your salvation. Baptism for Christians is like unwrapping the present. That's all baptism is. Baptism for Christians is like taking the trillion dollar check to the bank. That's all it is. You got to do something. But that doesn't mean that you earn your salvation. And, you know, some people are like, you, you mean this is like for real? You're telling me if I go get dipped in water, God's going to forgive my sins. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what the Bible says about this is true. It's not about the water. What is it about, church? It's about your heart. And what the Bible says is if you get your heart right before God and then you go get baptized, God's going to forgive your sins and he's going to give you a gift of the Holy Spirit. You want to know what I think the Bible means when it says that? Just what it says. I think when people come along and start trying to complicate things, and well, it doesn't really mean that, and well, this over here, and well, what about this exception, and well, what if you died on the way? God's going to work it out. But it's very dangerous to, to come and start trying to preach exceptions when this is the universal that we're given. Okay? This is super simple. I think we can complicate it. This is super simple. And this is in Acts for a reason. When it says uh, we're given this gift of salvation, that we're justified by this gift, we're justified by His grace, justified, and you guys... Take this to the bank, okay? This is something that will give your friends hope. What does justified means? Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified means. How does that sound to you? If you feel like life has gotten off track, if you feel like you are out of sorts, if you feel like you don't have a future, do you want to have a clean slate? Do you want to be justified? just as if I'd never sinned, well, then you need to repent and be baptized and give your life to Jesus. And that's how you get your sins forgiven. That's how you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. It means I can have confidence that I'm saved. It says, uh, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That word hope is confident expectation. We become heirs having the confident expectation of eternal life. That doesn't mean that I hope maybe someday I'll go to heaven. It means I know I'm going to heaven someday and I'm looking forward to it. Have you ever met somebody that knows they're saved? They know their, their sins are forgiven by Jesus? Because that's how God wants us to live. That's inspiring. When you meet somebody that knows they're right with God, and that knows that they're going to be okay, and that God's going to work it out, there's a confidence you can go through life with. If I die, what's going to happen? 
I get to go be with God. And man, all my friends get to go be with me too whenever, whenever they go. And I, that's not going to be fun, but I, the, the, the eternity is, you know, the death's not, but the eternity is. The worst thing that can happen to me in life is I could die and Jesus beats death. There's nothing to worry about. That is a completely different mindset than the fearful expectation of judgment when I don't know where I'm going. That's not how God wants you to live. God wants you to live with confidence in your relationship with Jesus. And that confidence in your relationship with Jesus is something that should be shared with others. He does not want you to go through life wondering if you're saved. He wants you to know that you're saved. And that's what baptism is for. There isn't meant to be this wondering. There, meant, there is meant to be a line in the sand where you can look and say that's when things changed. And that line in the sand where that's where things change is meant to be inspiring to others who can also draw their own lines in the sand and say that's when things changed. But whenever you get fuzzy on that, whenever it's an I don't really know or not really sure or... That's not the way this was designed to work. And again, guys, anytime we start doing things differently than the way things were done in the Bible, there's always consequences that are negative to that. Because every practice that we have in the church, there is a method behind why. There's a why behind all this. Sometimes we, we may not even see it, but Jesus knows. And he gave us these commands for a reason. And he gives, gives us these things to practice for a reason. That confidence, guys. God does not want you going through life wondering if you're saved. What does the Bible say happens whenever you give your life to Christ in repentance and baptism? You get your sins forgiven and you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt like maybe your sins aren't really forgiven? Have you ever felt like because you're struggling with the habit, you know, if I died right now, what would happen to me? Would I, be, would I be all right with the Lord because of this struggle? That I'm Guys, Jesus wants you to have assurance. He wants you to know that you're okay. He wants you to be motivated to live repentantly, and he wants you to inspire faith in others with, with that assurance of salvation. He doesn't want you to wonder whether you're saved or not. He wants you to know. He wants you to have confidence. It says in Mark 16, 16, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Guys, if, if you have wondered, do I need to be baptized to be saved? If you are in the headspace to ask that question, my question is, why are you asking? If you see that it's something Jesus is calling you to do, why are you asking? Why don't you just do what he's calling you to do? And I think the preponderance of Scripture, if, if you can read it a, a fourth or fifth grade level, guys, this is not that hard. What does this say? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Have I been baptized? Have I been baptized? If you have not been baptized today... Uh, do you believe in Jesus? Do you want to make him Lord of your life? Okay, what, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Some people have said, well, what if somebody is just stubborn and doesn't want to get baptized because they don't, they don't like the attention or they, they, just, they don't feel like it for whatever reason? You guys remember that story about Naaman in the Old Testament? 
Naaman, the guy that was covered with leprosy, the Gentile. And Naaman went to, uh, he was told by one of his servants, hey, there's this prophet you can go talk to in Israel and he'll cleanse your leprosy. And so Naaman goes and, and he's given instructions to go wash in the Jordan. What, the, what was the problem though? I think it was the Jordan. Uh, the problem is the Jordan is gross. Like there's dead cats in the Jordan. Why would I go to the Jordan River? I got clean water over here without the dead animals. Why, why am I going over here with the nasty water, right? But what did Naaman decide to do? You know what? This guy told me to do it. This is stupid. I don't want to, but I'm going to do it anyway. He goes and gets in the nasty Jordan River and he dips and he comes out. And what happens? He's cleansed of his leprosy. What would have happened if Naaman just decided he didn't want to do that? What would have happened if he'd have just gone home? He would have kept his leprosy. He thought that was so stupid that he needed to go dip in that water. That's what the man of God told him he needed to do. He thought that was so stupid that he wasn't going to do it. Because why? Just dipping in water. That's stupid. But then his servant urged him, and he goes and does it. He gets the benefit. I would like to suggest if Naaman had chosen to not do that, he would have kept his leprosy. Because even with his stinky attitude, he still obeyed, right? And God gave him the benefit. Guys, there are, there are folks that haven't been baptized that for whatever reason keep procrastinating, I'll do it later. Uh, and I'm telling you, it says something about your heart before God. If the Bible repeats something over and over and you have people in your life telling you this is something you need to do over and over, it says something about your heart before God when you continue to ignore God and ignore the people in your life that are talking to you about this stuff. And I want to encourage you to quit wasting time because this is step one. This isn't a graduate to baptism. This is step one, guys, of becoming a Christian. If you haven't done this, I want you to be convicted this morning, not by me, but by the word of God that you've been ignoring. You need to be baptized. This is serious business. Naaman, guys, if Naaman had chosen not to be cleansed, Naaman would have kept his leprosy. And you may think that's silly, but I just want to encourage you, don't, don't worry about what anybody thinks, worry about what God thinks. And obey God. Just, just obey God. Um, if you're struggling today with feeling like you're saved, as many of us in here, you've been walking with Christ for a while, but maybe you've been struggling. And one of the things these repentance lessons are designed to do, you know, every time Paul is, is writing to a struggling group of people, he reminds them of what their baptism meant. Like, here's what your baptism meant. It meant you were giving your life to Jesus. You were, you were, uh, you were, you were com uh, committing to be faithful here. He reminds them of that. If you're struggling today, talk with someone and let them know you're struggling and let them know that you need some help. The community of Christ is, is to come around you and, and help you help be family to you, and you've got to engage in that.
um, that's what this is for. We're going to be looking um, next week at, Jake is going to do the lesson for New Year's. We're going to have one more lesson on Acts after this. I wanted to hit conversion hard today because this is a basic that I see in the book of Acts. Guys, this, this conversion experience is meant to be a powerful identity marker for the people that we're working with uh, in the world. One of the things we pick up from Acts as they went out and spread the gospel, conversion was a line in the sand that was something that in the New Testament they are constantly calling back to to remind people of the commitment that's made. There's meant to be a line in the sand in your life before Christ and after Christ. And this is something that should be basic to our teaching. Where we're going after conversion is what we see in the rhythm of life in the church is there's conversion, then there is entry into community, there's commitment to ministry and commitment to mission. That is the rhythm of church life. So next week, coming off of conversion, or in two weeks, we're going to look at, uh, look at those other elements and how they apply uh, to a church like us that's planting churches and making disciples. So that's where we're going. Next Sunday, I want to invite all of you guys to our church banquet. We're going to have an annual banquet here. Uh, we'll have regular church here on 10 a.m., but then next, uh, next Sunday we'll do at 5 a meal here. I think we're going to have fire and smoked catered. Uh, it's, uh, I think the, bullet, the bulletin's got the... Settle down. Uh, <laughs> the bulletin's got the uh, prices and everything. It's, I, I don't remember what it was, so you guys can look. We're capping it at 40 bucks a family. I know that. Um, but anyway, we'd love to see all of you back here. I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to sing a song. You've got a communication card in your bulletin if you want to pull that out. It's got space for you to respond. If there's anything we can do, we would love to help you. If you're new to the church and you want to get plugged in, we would love to get you plugged in. Um, we'll sing a song, give you a chance to fill that out. Then we'll sing another song after that and pass some baskets and you can drop your card in there uh, and we'll take care of you. Let me pray and we're gonna close, guys. Thank you uh, for your attention. God, I uh, wanna thank you for bringing us together today. Uh, as we think through how to be faithful to you in life, I just pray that you help us see from the book of Acts the things that we need to see in order to apply, uh, apply this stuff to our life so that we can be the people we need to be and help others be the people they need to be. God, help us uh, to be a blessing to those around us. Help us to have the eyes of Jesus as we see needs and people that need help. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.